We're going to be in a, in a place of, uh, of the Bible here in a little bit. Matthew chapter 4 will be our text. You're welcome to go ahead and turn there. Um, I also think it's necessary to uh, say that we as uh, here in Church of the Nazarene are glad to be back on 105.1 The Wolf on Sunday mornings at 9.30. If you're riding down the road, we're glad that you're joining with us this morning. We'll be talking about Matthew chapter 4 here in just a few moments. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about something that has a very close connection to our Christian walk. That is how we eat. How many of you would say this morning that you feel like, you know what? I'd like to eat better. Now, better has a couple of ways of interpreting it, by the way. Maybe you eat a lot of things you shouldn't eat. Like, I heard Pastor Jessica talking about the Nazatween event this weekend. And believe it or not, when you set a bunch of teenagers free to go to an event, sometimes they don't make the best food choices. So if your kids got home on a sugar crash, maybe they were participating in those sorts of things. But some of us as well, not just in a, in a uh, what types of food we're eating, but also the quality of food we're eating. I thought this morning I would make your life better. Maybe you already know this little trick, but I'd make your life a little bit better by giving you something that I think is very simple to make an incredible dish. This is a meat dish, and this is the, the gist of how you do it. Whatever type of red meat, you can do this with chicken as well. You'll need to adjust your temperatures to, to, uh, to work. I happen to cook a great deal of wild game. I don't buy much uh, red meat that is uh, not wild game. And this works very, very well in a wild game uh, world as well. You're going to want to go outside and start a grill. You're going to want to either fire up your smoker or your grill, whatever that is in your world. Get it to about 250 degrees. And then you're going to season whatever piece of meat you're wanting to cook. Now, I would encourage you, if you like to cook an eye round or maybe a sirloin or maybe a back loin, whatever that is, to leave it whole. Season it as you would like, but leave it whole. Put that thing at 225, 250 degrees and let it slowly in that smoke come up to temperature. When I say come up to temperature, you need to also have a meat thermometer. This is very, very important. Guessing will not do well in this part, okay? Make sure you got a meat thermometer. I take that piece of meat up to about 118 degrees. I do not let take it over 120. That's my personal preference and what I would encourage you to do. When you get finished with this dish, by the way, this piece of meat, especially I'm talking about red meat right now, will end up finishing medium to medium rare, okay? Um, if, you, if you take it to medium well or well, you don't like good food in the first place, <laughs> all right? Uh, you probably also use A1 on your steak. Uh, teenagers, teenage ladies especially, if you go out to eat with the man that you are dating or the, the, the young man that you are dating and he asks for steak sauce, end the relationship immediately. <laughs> you can do better, okay? You can do better, all right? A1 is for poorly. If someone asks you, don't do this, but this is kind of a joke. If someone asks you at the, steak, at the steakhouse and you're eating a meal and they say, would you like any A1 or would you like any steak sauce? The proper answer is, I hope not. That's the answer. You know what I mean? Like that's how you approach a good steak, a good piece of meat that's been cut. So you take that piece of meat up to about 118 or 120. I'd advise you to have this next thing done outside because things will get a bit smoky. Take a cast iron skillet if you have one. I prefer to use butter because I also like taste. And so I, you use a good bit of butter in that cast iron, you melt it down, and you get that cast iron to the point that the butter starts to bubble, and then you sprinkle a bit of rosemary. Crushed rosemary is great, whole rosemary is fine, whatever that may be, but sprinkle it pretty liberally inside there all over the butter, and you take that piece of meat that is still a, a chunk, whatever that is, you take that out of the grill and immediately go over to this uh, cast iron skillet. And you, when it hits the skillet, it should be loud. 
should make noise, okay? Like you've taken that butter almost to the point where it is starting to scorch and there will be smoke. That's one of the reasons if you can do this outside, it's better. If not, you're going to want to turn your kitchen fan on, all right? Because this is going to get really, really smoky. You roll this thing around and you sear every edge of it, probably two to three minutes, maybe four, depending on just how big of a piece of meat we're talking about. This technique is called reverse sear. When you get done, you would think, this is another thing that people make a big mistake on, you would think as soon as that thing comes off the grill, you want to eat it. Do not buy into that lie. Listen, if you want this to work out well, you need to give that piece of meat about eight minutes to rest. All right? Let it sit off to the side. If you've got a cutting board, especially a cutting board that has grooves in it, because you'll watch that piece of meat, and believe it or not, when you sear that thing, that muscle like just tenses up and will turn very, very rigid. You give it about six, eight, maybe even ten minutes, and the whole piece of meat will relax. Juices will flow everywhere. You then slice that thing cross grain. You should have a nice sear edge all the way around it. Those pieces of rosemary will have stuck to it. And if you like a dish that looks pretty when you eat it and it tastes good, this is an easy one. I'm telling you, it will make your life better. But you know what? If you want to make your life better by eating something that has been well prepared and taken care of, all right, and, and, and it tastes incredible, if you want to do that, here's the, the uh, problem is. It's going to take a little bit of time and prep. They don't sell reverse sear in the frozen food aisles in the boxes. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, you just can't get that. You I mean you can't create that with it. If you're going to do it and you're going to enjoy this, I'm going to tell you that smoking process I talked about, depending on the thickness of the piece of meat, it may take an hour and a half. It may take two and a half hours, depending on how long and what temperature you begin with to get that piece of meat up to the proper temperature. It's going to require you to change your schedule a little bit to make it work. But let me tell you, if you want something that tastes amazing, something that you are proud to serve and something that you enjoy, something that will take you to the place of eating that you're not sure where gluttony is, but you know you're looking at it with that next bite, that kind of good, it's going to require you to find yourself where you change schedule, you change your time and prep, but let me tell you what, it is oh so worth it. Now you may find yourself this morning going, I didn't show up at church this morning for a cooking lesson. I get it. But let me tell you what, what we're about to read about, there are such beautiful similarities. As a matter of fact, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 here in just a moment. I'd invite you to turn there, but if you do, this morning's service is not going to be one where I read to you two chapters because we're actually going to be looking at Matthew 3 and chapter 4. This is going to be a very odd sermon because it is crafted in, the, in the, what's happening within the stories here. So what I want you to do is look in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, inside the chairs in front of you, there are multiple Bibles that are sitting there. If you do not own your own Bible, those Bibles are sitting in those chairs for you to take home. All right. If you don't own a Bible and you want one, all you do is take that blue Bible and walk right out these doors with it, and we will be grateful that you took it, and we will replace it with another one. We intentionally buy hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Bibles every year. There are boxes behind you stacked up with them. You want a Bible, you take one home. No questions asked. Enjoy it, okay? Pull that Bible out. Look at Matthew chapter 3, and I want to ask you, congregation, what are the section headings in Matthew chapter 3? What's happening? You're reading about John the Baptist. All right. But John the Baptist, I believe, prepares the way as the first one. And then what is the second thing that happens? Jesus is baptized. There you go. Exactly right. So you're reading in this. You need to picture the Matthew chapter 4 we're about to read. This is when Jesus' adult ministry begins. As a matter of fact, this is that break point where we really start learning about Jesus' life. And I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest in any way that Jesus didn't do the Christian life or what His Heavenly Father wanted Him to do before this. I'm just saying when we read about Jesus' ministry, when, when His life kicks off after His mom tells Him to 
change the water into wine or tells him to go to take care of the situation, if you remember that story. Immediately after that, you're watching kind of the launching point of Jesus. And so I started asking the question like, what are the things that Jesus experienced and or chose to do that were foundational for him beginning a life in ministry? I mean, if we're going to talk about being the Christians that God has called us to be, then why not look back at Jesus and say, like, well, what were the most important things that Jesus was doing? Like, what, what was he passionate about? What did he go after? What were the things that meant something? And so now we're in Matthew chapter 4, and I'm not going to just read you an entire chapter this morning. I want you to engage with me. Look down at those section headings and let them remind you of what's going on. There are four segments of chapter 4. What are those four? Name one of them. Jesus is being tempted. Absolutely. What else is going on in that section? Jesus is beginning to preach. What else is going on in that section? He is recruiting disciples. And what is the last one that's going on in that section? He is traveling around healing people. Now let's talk about this for just a moment. You see Jesus coming out of the segment where John the Baptist is declaring the way, and then he is baptized, and then these are the things that take place. Folks, one of the things that we need to do a better service to our young believers especially, to do a better service to our believers as well as adults to tell you, when you make a considerable stand to begin to do something for Jesus Christ, you better lace them on tight. Do you know that, that phrase comes from boxing or you can talk about boots, either one. You better lace them up tight because I'm going to tell you what, if you've been living a certain way and you decide to change your schedule, when you change your schedule to begin doing something different, I can almost guarantee something is going to happen to try and rock your world. Folks, I've known people before who were out of churches for years out of church for years, and when they decide to go to church and they finally as a family, they're like, hey, we're going to start like making church a priority again. Tomorrow morning we're going to church. I can't break confidence in this story, but let me tell you, they wake up the next morning to find tragedy at their house. Tragedy. And you want to know what? Still not back. Still not back. Like, this is what happens. When you start making decisions that you're going to take your spiritual life more seriously and you're going to start doing things and maybe even you're going to begin in this ministry or jump off in this small group or whatever it may be that you're going to start doing, when you start doing those things, I need to tell you, prepare yourself in such a way that when evil shows up and begins to rock your world, it doesn't in fact rock your world. You can then, because you knew evil was coming. When he shows up, you know what you do? You look at him and wink. I knew what you were doing. I expected you. Why did it take you so long to get to my doorstep? Because I'm going to tell you what, something will happen to try and rock you. Now, let me give you a little bit of, of beautiful uh, response in this. Jesus goes through this temptation. There are sermons that are crafted about each segment of this temptation. They're beautiful. But for this morning's purposes, know this. Jesus was tempted on multiple levels. And when he walks away from that temptation, how many more times do you hear or read about Satan tempting Jesus anymore? Good answer. You don't. Some people would point at the time when he was in the garden and asking for this cup to be passed from him as if he was being tempted to not do what God had called him, what his heavenly father had called him to do. And I'm not so sure that that was temptation. There'll be something that we can talk about in another setting. I'm not so sure that that was, was temptation, that he, wasn't want, or he was not going to do it, but simply yielding to what the heavenly father so, you know, if this was my option, Jesus, is there another, or Heavenly Father, is there another way? But if there's not another way, 
not your, not my will, but yours. I mean, I don't know that I categorize that in the same temptation level of evil trying to get him to test God, to take care of himself, to, to, to prove himself in such a way, or to, or to trust in himself instead of trusting in the Heavenly Father, those sorts of things, to use his ability for miracles in a selfish manner. Those temptations, when you read them, you need to read that this took place, Jesus handled those temptations, he dealt with evil, and then he walked away and those temptations were no more. Did you know? Did you know your temptations can be no more? Did you know that the things that have plagued you don't have to keep plaguing you? Like, folks, let me set you free this morning. You don't have to continue to deal with the same things over and over because it feels so defeating. It feels so... At the point that you were able to put those to rest, I'm telling you in testimony, the things I used to deal with, I don't deal with anymore. You know, some of those things have been long gone. I look back at some of maybe the struggles I had at a different segment in life, and I'm going to tell you, I don't struggle with those things anymore. I don't know if this is the setting to break down each one of those things, but I'm just going to tell you as a, as a general statement, like there are things in my life that I used to struggle with that I don't struggle with because I have laid them at the feet of Jesus, and, and He has helped me work through those things. And folks, you can be set free this morning. You don't have to continue to listen to evil, try and tempt you into those things. You can be set free. Amen? After that portion takes place, this is when things, and you need to know that the temptation, uh, and I would, I would say in our world most applicably, temptation, evil will not just give up when you win on the first one, okay? You will have to continuously look for evil to tempt you and how he's going to tempt you and to continue to learn how to push evil to the side and say, I will not be part of that. But then as you move forward in that, know that in your spiritual life, temptation will happen. You can deal with that. You can be set free. And in the very next part of this that we read about, maybe not in chronological order, but as these four are happening, one of the other ones I'd like to talk about is that Jesus began to preach. Let me tell you one of the lies that the church bought into years ago that has crippled us for a long time. It was a really cute phrase. We're good about creating cute phrases. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. It's cute, isn't it? If it's cute, it's, say it's cute. Amen? It's cute. You know what I mean? And it's not to say that you shouldn't be living a life that point people in the direction of God. But let me tell you this. We have so hidden behind preach the gospel, use words if necessary, which creates this. That means I don't have to actually tell anybody about Jesus. I can just live my life and hopefully they see what I'm doing. Now, let me tell you what. You should be doing this anyway. Okay, like living your life in such a way that hopefully people see it. This should be happening anyway. But you cannot neglect telling people about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, about the temptations he's delivered you from. Amen about the things that have happened. And now like I look back at my life and I'm like, you know what? I can do nothing but respond back and tell other people I have experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ and now I can tell you about what He's done for me. That's what we're called to do. Like it's at the core of who we are. It is realizing we are going to be tempted, but as we are being tempted or, or as we move forward in life, we are called to preach the gospel in one way or another. You folks are set in places intentionally to be able to share the gospel with people. You work beside people every day who have no idea God can set them free from temptation. You work beside people every day who have no idea what the, the unconditional love of a heavenly father is and what that looks like. And you get the opportunity to be able to go back into your world and tell them about Jesus. What a cool, I mean, what better conversation could you possibly have? I love to talk about cooking, but it don't matter. You know what I mean? I love to talk about my hobbies, 
They don't matter. Not in the grand scheme of things, you know? Preach the gospel. It's what we're called to do. It's what Jesus is one of the first things that's taking place. And here's one of the other beautiful things. What was Jesus doing while he was preaching the gospel? Did you catch this? Look, look down with me into, into verse 17 where it talks about him actually uh, preaching the gospel. But as he was moving forward, what was, what was he doing while he was going around preaching the gospel? It was one of the other four. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't recruiting. So we've kind of ruled him out here. He's, he's healing people, right? He's seeing needs as he is going about telling people about Jesus. He's seeing needs and he's responding to those needs. And some people have conversations with me throughout the week, and lots of people do actually, but some people have conversations with me and they have no idea how they are speaking into my sermon. I mean, they're just simply going through life and as they're telling me whatever's going on and we're sharing about things, they have no idea that like I'm hearing what they're saying through the lenses of knowing what we're going to be preaching about this Sunday. And so I'm, I'm sitting here talking to an individual about life and we're having a great time hanging out, all those sorts of great things. And he says in the midst of that conversation that I'm asking about how's his family doing and all those sorts of things. And he mentions something about cutting firewood. And I said, oh, really? You need firewood? He goes, no, man, I need to cut some for my mom. I heard you guys talking about cutting firewood. Like, do y'all have trees on your property where we could you know, where I could come in and cut some firewood. And I'm like, man, not only do I have places that we were trees laying, like easy access, drive the truck up and we'll begin to cut. Like, tell me what afternoon when you get off work and I'll meet you with a chainsaw, gas and oil. We will cut firewood for your mom. It's amazing how when talking to people about things of, of a spiritual nature, the preaching the gospel, if you will, that in the midst of that, you become aware of the needs that they have. Do you see that as Jesus is traveling about telling people about the love of the heavenly father, that the kingdom of God has come near is the words that we read in that passage, that as he's doing that, he's encountering people who have needs. And what is he doing? He's serving them. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's seeing what's going on. He's taking those things in and recognizing that I can help this person's physical need as well. Let me tell you, one of the things that we in the church, and, and if there's something about ECN that I would brag, not would, but have bragged about, you may be relatively new to Erin Church of the Nazarene, and you don't even know what you sat yourself down in. You know what I mean? Like, not literally, your chairs are clean, okay? But, but like in a, in a figurative sense, okay? Like you sat yourself in the middle of a sanctuary full of people who work their tails off. And not just professionally, but they work their tails off serving their community and each other and other people that we don't even know about. There are things happening within this community I don't even have a clue about. And they serve in a variety of ways. I hope, Bill, I hope you don't get mad at me. Last couple of weeks, you know what Bill's been thinking about trying to come up with is like, I want to introduce kids to the outdoors. Have a chance to be able to tell them about Jesus and maybe take kids that don't have the opportunity to go fishing. I want to look for those opportunities and start preparing for that. So you know what? Bill Taylor's starting to work on figuring out and is already starting to meet with a few families about, hey, let's get together and just teach some kids how to fish. You know what I mean? Like, let's spend some time together. Like, you want to know what serving a kid who otherwise isn't afforded that opportunity is a form of service. Sitting in a conversation and finding out that your buddy needs to cut firewood for, for his mom. That's an opportunity that you have. And so as you're going about preaching the gospel, you recognize that temptation has or will happen. And that I will move forward preaching the gospel. But as I'm preaching, it means I'm talking to people. And as I'm talking to people, I'm learning about things that they need or there's the ways that I can serve them. We're called to be people who serve. Folks, if you haven't been here on a Wednesday night to see what's going on... We feed 
150 individuals every Wednesday night, a solid meal. Amen? Like some of you have eaten it, it is mighty fine, all right? A mighty fine meal. Do the math with me for just a moment. It's 150 meals. The actual people, the reality is we serve about 30 extra plates on top of that every Wednesday night. So you're talking about 180 meals, individual meals per Wednesday night, times a 20-week semester, times two semesters a year. Pull your phones out, folks. You're looking at ECN providing 7,000 meals a year. 7,000 meals a year. And you want to know how that happens? It is people that not only use their money as a way to <clears throat> give to the church, and then that money is used to buy food. It is people that show up on Wednesday nights. Matter of fact, a few of them show up Wednesday during the day to begin that prep work. And that's just a, it, I don't want to minimize it, but folks, 7,000 meals sounds huge, but it's a microcosm of what goes on through this church. Like you have people that decide they want to lead small groups within student ministries or within children's ministries. There are people sitting in the nursery right now taking care of our infants. Those things are happening on a regular basis, and that doesn't even touch the amount of things that are going on outside of this community where people are serving each other, taking care of other people. It's the core of who we are as a church. It's what we're called to do because Jesus lives it out in example. The last one I want to point at you this morning, the temptation, the call to preach, the call to serve while you are preaching. And then the last one I want to point out you this morning is this reality. Jesus began in the very beginning forming small groups. If there was something about, e I just brag so much about EC and how like, we serve. You know, it's what we do. It's who we are. I don't know that we do small groups across the board really well. The, the reason I say we don't do it really well is because for whatever reason, we as a congregation haven't fully latched on to the importance of getting together in smaller groups. Folks, that's where, the, that's where the church does real family life. I love the fact that we come here and worship on a Sunday morning, but this setting is that we come in, we worship, we sit in our seats, we hear from the Word, and then we go back to life for most people. Now, I need to point out very quickly here, to say that we don't do this well as a church is, is not in the least saying that we don't do this well within our small groups, because we got some killer small groups that are going on, and small groups of people who do life well together. And as good of a job as these individuals are doing... Their attendees represent a microcosm of the wholeness of ECN. Folks, one of the things that we need to realize is when Jesus began ministry, it was being tempted, preaching, serving, and having a small group of people to do life with. One of the things that churches have done poorly over the years, you all have seen it happen, is that too many people are connected to this position and not enough of them are connected in these positions. Does that make sense? How many times have you seen where this position gets vacated and these numbers drop? You want to know why these numbers dropped? It's because these were not connected to each other well enough. Their unifying agent was whoever fulfilled this position. And let me tell you, that's a sickness in the church. It's bad for us, okay? I made a hospital visit one time <clears throat> several, several years ago. I was a youth pastor. I walked into, the, into that hospital room, and when I came in, someone said, uh, someone from your church is here to see you. And so, like, I walk in with a smile on my face. I'm ready to be the youth pastor who's visiting people in the hospital. And I, I walk in the door, and this lady pops up out of bed and looks at me. She goes, oh, preacher couldn't come. <laughs> yep. Glad I came to see you, Miss Lovely. This is awesome for both of us now. Can I pray for you? You know, like, I need to pray for you in many different ways, but can I pray for you? Like, folks, that's a, that's a statement of 
too much connection here and not enough of seeing yourselves as the church. Churches will live or die with these connections. I can't say this clearly enough. It is my prayer that I retire an old crazy preacher from this place somewhere down the road, all right? It's my prayer. Not at the cost of not doing what God calls me to do, but it's my prayer that, that that's what I get to do for a long, long time. But if I leave another ministry and watch it crumble because I didn't build it well, I'm telling you, as the shepherd of this flock, small groups have to be the DNA of who we are. When you are not well, you call your small group. When things are going chaotic in your world, you get in touch with your small group. I've mentioned several people here who within their small groups, they have different modes of connecting with each other to make sure that people know what's going on and they're praying for each other and they're, and they're doing that well. And I'm, I'm saying all that to say this morning, we need to work better at that. And, and, and let me go a little bit further. One of the things we have tried, myself, uh, David Bell for years and I have been working together. Chad Mitchell and I have been very recently working together about sharpening what we do from a small group perspective. And there are things that we've noticed over time, some things that have to happen in order for us to do these things well. And one of them is it requires a group of people who are absolutely determined and disciplined to make it work. Stubbornly, stubbornly, you know, like, we will continue to meet and we will continue to check on you when you are not there. And it requires a group of people who see each other as something of importance, not a, a tangent or, or a garnish on their life, but something that is of importance that they decide like, this is what we need to do because it's better for us. Even if it means I need to reconstruct how I do my time, because I recognize if I spend time doing this right, it is oh so worth it. I wonder why in a row we were talking about cooking in the beginning. A good small group is very much like a meal. You have to decide, I'm going to take the time to make it right and to work at it. And you recognize that though it will require work and changing my schedule around in order to make this work, once I get into that new rhythm and flow, my life will be infinitely better because I am plugged into a group of people who I care about and who care about me, not in the vast sea, but in the, in the bucket of small groups. The other thing that we've noticed over time is that the pastor and a team can handpick and try to work through who should be in small groups together and it doesn't work nearly as well as a group or as a couple of people or a few people who decide to be stubbornly intent on we are going to create a small group together and do life. I could sit around here this morning and look at groups of you and think y'all ought to do this, y'all to do this, y'all to do this, but you wanna know what? All of those ideas crash if they're my idea. They work when you as the body see this as important. When you as the body decide, I need community, and so because I need it, I'm not going to wait on somebody to tell me to do it or where to go. I'm going to create it because the ones who, cre who create, who, who work, that's where we see most consistently, that's where we see it work. It is people who decide, I need this in my life, and I will begin to work through that. So this morning, we look back at Jesus's the things that were the first four things he dealt with as soon as he took off into ministry, if you will, his, his adult ministry life, if you will. We don't know what happened before this, but we know as soon as the stories get told about Jesus, that Jesus dealt with temptation, that Jesus moved on to preach, that he was serving people while he was preaching, and that he was gathering together with small groups of people, that that became a, a life group of his for the next three to three and a half years. May we be people who work to do the same. Amen? You want to talk to me about small groups? I'm all ears. I do have other services this morning, but trust me, throughout the week, I want to talk about it. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that we are both a church 
who can look around and see that, God, we're getting some of these things right. We look at Jesus' life and how He began in ministry, and God, we're doing these things, and yet we want to do them well. God, we don't want to just, to just get by. We want to do things well. And so God, as we move forward in our life working to do things well, would you sharpen us as we deal with the temptations of life? Would you sharpen us in being able to preach the gospel and speak to other people about who you are? Would you sharpen us as we look for places to serve and to be of service to you through serving our fellow man? And God, would you sharpen us as we either establish work to do better, maybe even God work to form from nothing in the, in the establishing of... God, would you... Would you sharpen us as people within our small group needs? It is your son's name we pray. Amen.